You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. If you would open your Bibles to the book of Joshua, we've looked through this genealogy of Jesus Christ and we've come up with these women, these five women that have been recorded on the pages of Scripture in a most unusual way that it should catch our attention. So we want to take these uh, five messages as we talk about Advent and look at the women of Ad- Advent. We looked at Tamar from Genesis 38. Last week, um, we looked at Bathsheba, and this morning we're going to be looking at Rahab, and that's in Joshua chapter 2, if you would turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2. But in order for us to get a grasp of what's going on in Joshua chapter 2, I'd like to try to uh, set the scene for you by looking at the wide-angle lens and then narrowing down um, to the, the, the Zoom focus this morning for just a few minutes before we actually um, read the text. I, I want to use this theme, the theme of fresh water. Fresh water is essential for life. When we were in Africa, uh, there were two ways to get water. One way was to go to the riverbed. When you're in a place called Kabong, Karamoja, it's at 4,990 feet elevation. You've got uh, maybe one rainy season during the year. The water gushes down out of the sky for a couple of weeks. All of the riverbeds and natural reservoirs fill up, and then they empty almost as quickly as they fill up. And so the people in those primitive areas have nothing to do to find water but to go and dig in the riverbed. Um, And that's a problem because not only do people find water in the riverbed, but a lot of other things happen in the riverbed in in such a way by way of uh, what animals do and by what people do that the water in the riverbed is polluted. It's toxic. And so you have these um, problems there of cholera. People get these diseases from drinking dirty water. And in these regions, there's not really a skillful way or an effective way to treat it. And so people die from drinking dirty water. So what our mission did um, a, a long time ago under the leadership of a friend of mine named Bruce Schmidt is our mission when we were in Africa went in and put in wells. And when you put in the wells, you can get down to the fresh water, you can pump the fresh water, you can provide people with fresh water so they don't have to go to the riverbed and drink dirty water. The problem that they had there, it was before we arrived, is that people would come and steal parts off of the wells so that people couldn't get fresh water, so they were relegated to drinking dirty water unless they were willing to pay these crooks a fee to get something that should be free. And so therein lies a problem. There are these sources of fresh water, and there are those that want to prevent us from getting fresh water. And what you do with criminals like that is you don't figure out a way to compromise with them. You don't figure out a way to figure out how we can coexist with people that are doing things that are destroying lives. The point I want you to understand in this story about Rahab, and when I say story, I mean a narrative from Scripture, a storyline, not a a fairy tale. What I want you to understand is this, that God is the God of fresh water, not just physically, but spiritually. And as we look at this text this morning, we've got to understand that the entire Old Testament is pointing us to this good, gracious, loving God who wants us to have everything that we need for life. And that thing that we need, the picture of it, the symbol of it is fresh water. We see that in the Old Testament 
and in the New Testament. So we're looking at Joshua, but before we get to Joshua, let me just give you some background for the Old Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books in it. The New Testament has 27 books. And when you look at the Old Testament, you've got the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you move from the law to history. And so we're going to begin looking this morning in Joshua at uh, somewhat of an overview of the history of Israel, beginning in Joshua, going all the way to Esther. That's 12 books. Then you have five books of poetry. You have uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Then you have 17 prophetic books. If you look back to the history and see what's going on with Israel, you can see that there's all all of this, this rise to prominence of David and then this divided kingdom and they go into captivity and they have these prophets that then speak these 17 prophetic books that then speak to these people who are in desperate need of the word. Of God and in desperate need of fresh water. So that's an overview of the Old Testament, these 66 books of the Old Testament. Where we find ourselves this morning is in Joshua. And I want you to consider the personalities leading up to Joshua just so we can have a historical perspective uh, very quickly um, this morning. In the book of Genesis, it's the book of beginnings. And we see creation in Genesis in chapters 1 and 2. We see the fall of man in chapters 3 to 5, where Adam and Eve said, Hey, God, we know that you've got a great plan. We know that you're holy, but we think we can do better. We think we can be like you. We want to be like God because we don't want anybody to tell tell us what to do. We want to decide what we want to do with our own lives. We want to be independent of you, God. And so Satan lays out this plan for them, this huge lie that's this rotten, putrid contaminated, toxic water, and they drink it anyway. We move from the fall in Genesis to the, f- the flood in Genesis, chapter 6 to 9. The, the reason there's a flood is because Adam and Eve are drinking this toxic water, and this toxic water has filled all of humanity, and God said, enough is enough. Sin is so bad. Sin is not trivial. Sin is so bad that the only remedy for sin is death. That's why he told Adam and Eve in in Genesis, the day that you eat of it, this fruit, you will surely die. The remedy for sin is death. Please keep that in mind. God's not just running around as some ogre arbitrarily wiping people out. God is dealing with men and women who are in competition with him and not in cooperation with him. And so we see the flood. The flood wipes out all of humanity except for Noah and his family. And then we move from uh, Genesis 6 to 9 to Genesis 10 and 11. And these people who come out of the flood build this huge tower. They're still in rebellion against God. They're still doing things their way. They're going to make their own way to God. They're going to make their own name for themselves. Then in Genesis chapter 12, we see these prominent personalities in the Bible. We see, first of all, Abraham. And here's the promise that God makes to Abraham in Genesis 12. God says, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and this nation is going to be the nation of people that brings fresh water to the world. So Abraham is Genesis 12 to 25. And then Genesis 25 and 26 is Isaac, Abraham's son. And then Genesis 27 to 37 is the story of Jacob and Jacob's family and how um, he has these 12 sons, these 12 tribes. And then when you come to chapter 37 to chapter 50 of Genesis, you see the story of Joseph. As the story of Joseph is coming to an end, all of Israel, these people that are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, 
Isaac and Jacob are now moving into Egypt because there's a great famine. When they moved into Egypt, they went into the land of Goshen because it's a land that was, that was prime property for raising livestock, but secondly, it was a prime property for population explosion, and that's exactly what happened. Over 400 years, this, these people, these 70 or so people that went into the land now have expanded to an excess of two million people, but unfortunately... There's, uh, there arose a Pharaoh who didn't know who Joseph was, this great leader. And these people are imprisoned, 400 years of slavery, and then Moses comes on the scene in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is, is about the Passover. Moses comes on the scene, let my people go. There is this great battle between the life-giving, water-providing God and the toxic water gods of Egypt. And the, the, the God of Abraham won out, hands down. It, it, the, the, the deciding point in the victory was the Passover. The, a death angel is coming through, and death is going to come to all of these toxic water suppliers in all of Egypt. And God said, I'm preserving you, Israel, to be the source of fresh water. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a lamb. I want you to kill that lamb. I want you to take its blood. I want you to put it on the doorpost so when the death angel passes over and he rightly meets out the wrath of God on sinners, which is, which is the, the consequence of that is death, when that then occurs, curse when I see the blood that a substitute has died in your place for your sin. Looking forward to Christ, I will pass over and let you live because your sin has symbolically been paid for by that lamb. And so then the, the book of Exodus, we see these people being released from captivity. Once they're released from captivity, Moses is leading them. Once they get to a great place to stop and worship, we see the book of Leviticus, which is about worship. Then we move on to the book of Numbers, which is about wandering. When people don't worship, they wander. That's exactly what happens. So they're wandering around for 40 years and God says, okay, all of you folks that rebelled, that older generation, you're going to die in the wilderness. And when you die off 40 years, late, 40 years later, you you can go into the promised land. That's exactly what happened. And so when we come to the book of Deuteronomy, it's the second law. It's the rewriting of the first law so that this younger generation can understand who God is, what he has done, who they are, and how they should live in light of that. And now Moses passes off the scene and Joshua is the new leader. And so when we come to the book of Joshua, Joshua is about conquest. And so that's a brief overview that starts out here with the wide angle and narrows us down to the focus of this one lady named Rahab. They, you, you mark it down. You may say, I'm, I'm neutral. I, I don't believe. I, I'm agnostic. I'm atheist. Anyone that is not cooperating with God is competing with God. Mark it down. And, and let, it, let us understand this, and this will be the, the main thing that I'll say this morning, and I'll say it a few times. Encountering God leads to repentance or rebellion. As we look at this text, we're going to see a people who are encountering God. Jericho is encountering God. Whenever we encounter God, it either leads to repentance or rebellion. Repentance leads to unbelievable life. There are those of you here this morning and you're in sin and you want to hang on to your sin and there's, there is no way that you 
think that you can live without your sin. And what I would call you to do this morning is to turn loose of that toxic, nasty, stinking septic tank water that you've been drinking. It will destroy you. I would call you this morning to repent of that, and I would call you to turn to Christ this morning because fresh water is flowing from him. And if you think I'm making up the theme of fresh water because I lived in Africa for a year and we had wells and we had dirty water, think about what Jesus said. And I'm kind of bouncing all over the place, but the ball is going to hit the floor and stay there in in just a minute. Think about what Jesus said in in John chapter 4. Jesus encountered a woman at at the well in, in John 4, and they were talking about drawing water out of the ground. But listen to what Jesus said when he talked with her in John chapter 4 about the, the water of life. And this is, this is the thing. He said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Every one of us in this room has a, a thirst that is stirring within us. Every single one of us. Every one of us is thirsty. And we're looking for a million different ways to quench that thirst. Sin is Satan's alternative that he's been asking, or he's, he's, been, he's, been, he's been tempting us with ever since the garden. He's been doing it over and over and over again. Every one of us is thirsty. Watch this. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him Spring, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. In John chapter 7, listen to what Jesus said on that last day of the feast, the great day. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not been glorified. I want you to understand that this is not some isolated story in the text of scripture where some ogre god goes in and wipes out an entire city because he is an oppressor and Jericho are the oppressed. I want you to understand that there is a holy God who owns everything. There is a holy God who superintends all of history. There is a holy God who has a, a massive, undeniable plan, and that holy God is a good God, and that holy God has given us his word, and that holy God has caused this nation to rise up that he can supply the truth, and he can supply life, and he can supply fresh water too. And we are the recipients and the benefactors of that fresh water, and we have the responsibility because of what happened in Rahab's life as she was a benefactor and one who was then used to continue to to, uh, allow the flow of God or the mission of God to continue. We stand in that long line of people who have been benefactors of life-giving water, and we too should be those who give life-giving water to those around us. And so we look at the story of Rahab. The, 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 The city of Jericho was the gateway to the promised land, it was a 10-acre tract of land surrounded by a wall. I've had the privilege of going there and looking at the wall and actually seeing that it collapsed from the inside out from archaeological studies. And you can see it with your very own eyes, the very unusual way that the wall of Jericho um, fell down. It was filled with uh, a wicked pagan people. Idolatry was prominent there 
in Jericho. They were absolutely and certainly deserving of the wrath and judgment of God because of their sin. So again, let me put your mind at ease as we see Israel moving through and destroying everything. God owns it all. It is God's prerogative to do what he wants with what is his. God is not unjust. He is perfectly just. He is righteous. He is good. He is loving. And God is sending his people to this land so that he can raise up a people to bring forth a son that will be the source of living fresh water for all of humanity. And a part of that plan was him setting aside this woman, this harlot, this Rahab, so that we could understand that this truly was an act of God. So let me walk you through the text and give you some uh, titles for the sections of the text and then try to make some application for us this morning. The first thing we see is Rahab's cooperation. We see that in verses 2 through 7. Let me read it for you. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly in, into the land. He said, go view the land, especially Jericho. It's, it's believed that it was probably Caleb and, and Salmon. Salmon was uh, the guy who ended up marrying Rahab, we know from other accounts of Scripture. He didn't send in 12 spies this time. He sent in two spies. Um, he didn't send them in to determine the strength of the enemy. I think he sent them in for the sake of Rahab. They're moving forward. Nothing's going to stop them. A negative report like we found back in Numbers chapter 14 is not going to sway these people at this point. They were completely confident in the plan of God as they moved through. It says in, in the next verse, And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. A pretty safe place to go. People from all over the place are coming and going into Rahab's house. It was a house of uh, prostitutes. To search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman who had taken these two men and hidden them, and she said, For you will overtake them. She lied. She lied. This story is not about Rahab's lie. This story is not about Rahab's sin. This story is not about Rahab's harlotry. This story is about God's mission, and this story is about God using sinful people to accomplish his purposes. So don't get bogged down in the lie. I'm here to neither justify the lie or dissect the lie or use it to tell you that it's okay to lie sometimes or not okay to lie sometimes. It's never okay to lie. It's clearly uh, a command from Scripture that we shouldn't. It's never appropriate, but we're reading the narrative and this is what's happened. The, the text is describing what happened. It's not prescribing that these are things that you should do and you can never use Rahab's lie to justify your lying. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in, the roof, in order on the roof, which probably indicated that Rahab was an entrepreneurial woman, a businesswoman, a fabric maker, along with her other talents. Verse 7. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So we see Rahab's cooperation. Now here's, here's what you need to understand as we try to compare Scripture with Scripture. He, Hebrews um, chapter uh, 11 tells us this about Rahab. It says, by faith, 
the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And I would suggest to you that them circling the walls of Jericho for seven days was a massive act of grace. Everybody in Jericho could have done what Rahab did, but they didn't. Seven times around the city, the, the grace of God warning them over and over again. By the way, they had heard about this history of Israel for 40 years, for 40 years. That's what Rahab is going to tell us in just a minute. But watch this, verse, verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. What we see in these first seven verses is the, is the basis for Rahab's redemption, her belief in the God of the spies, her cooperation with the God of the spies and the spies in accomplishing the purposes of God. We see the same thing in James chapter 2, verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So we see, first of all, Rahab's cooperation with the people of God, with Israel, with Joshua, with this invading army. And these seven verses are the actions that are indicative of saving, redeeming, transforming faith. The second thing we see, and we'll read it in verses 8 to 11, is Rahab's confession. And this is, this is profound. Um, it's said that... that um, we process as much information or have access to as much information in a single day, and we process as much information in a single day as the people in 1500 would have processed in their entire lifetime. That's pretty amazing. You say, why do you say that? Well, there has been a historical narrative that Rahab has um, been exposed to for an extremely long period of time. And they were not inundated with hundreds of TV channels. They were not inundated with hundreds of newspaper accounts. They were not overwhelmed with a gazillion opinions that people are Googling constantly, right? They heard this story of something that happened a long ways away, and now they know it's knocking at their door. And it was something that occupied a lot of space in their brain. And so we hear Rahab making this confession. Verse 8, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Right? I know that the Lord, I didn't read it on Twitter. Um, which is, by the way, just a bunch of opinions. Just because something's on the Internet doesn't mean it's a fact. It's just opinions. And by the way, you may, this may come as a shock to you, but some people's opinions are wrong. But here she is saying, I know that there is something, this absolute fact. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Lord has given you the land. She's understanding who God is. She's understanding what God is doing. She's understanding how he's moving throughout history. She's understanding that he has a mission and he's accomplishing things that are, that are greater than who she is and what she's doing. And she understands, watch this, that she wants to be a part of the mission and plan of God. She wants God to involve her in what he's doing. 
unfortunately, we still suffer from the, the residue of Eden when Adam and Eve heard Satan's temptation, you shall be like God. We want to be like God, and what we want to do is we want God to come help us on our mission. We want God to come join us in our plan. Rahab understood something, that there is this huge God who is in control of all things and who is running from beginning to end the history of mankind, and he's moving through Jericho, and he is going to accomplish his purposes. And so she's bowing down before him in this confession saying, I know that he's God, and I want to be a part of what he's doing. Notice what she says. I know that the Lord has given you the land. She understood Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and all the people who dwell therein, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For you have heard how the Lord, for, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. That was 40 years ago, by the way. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan of Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man. Because of you, the Lord, there is a God. He owns and controls everything. He owns Jericho. He owns the people in Jericho. He has an undeniable, unstoppable plan. We have heard of his powerful supernatural acts for 40 years now. We serve competing gods. Jericho worshiped gods that were in competition with the God of Israel, with the God, which might not be a good thing for us. We are under judgment the story of Jericho is a good God coming to destroy false idols. It's the story of a life-giving, clean water God coming to destroy a, a people who have rested in and encouraged people and told them, hey, this is good water. Go dig it out of the riverbed. Drink this toxic water. Telling them lies. God is moving through, and she understands they are going to be destroyed. She's confessing we are hopeless and have nowhere to turn but to ourselves for our self-preservation. So we're going to hide inside the confines of these walls. And she was proclaiming the enormity and the power and the goodness of God. Rahab understood that Jericho was under divine judgment, and she humbled herself before the God who was bringing judgment. The hearts of the people in Jericho melted. Just, just by way of um, contemporary application, I would share with you briefly this morning that the land that we live in is under judgment. Everything in Scripture would tell us that the United States of America is under judgment for a long time. And I would ask you, how, how does that impact you? Are you continuing to go to the riverbed and dig up toxic water and drink it, or are you turning to the God of fresh water? Are you turning to the God of life? Does it, does it cause fear to well up within you? Does it cause you to want to say, Lord, I surrender to you. My heart melts within me. I'm scared of what's going on around me. I'm scared of the direction that we're moving in. I would, I would beg you this morning to repent. I would beg you this morning to quench your thirst on the one who gives thirst quenching. Water. The third thing we see, verses 12 to 13, and I think it's significant, Rahab's concern. Um, it's interesting that in the city of Jericho, there's one person, and that one person is 
this woman who is willing to help the people of God. That one person is this woman who understands the revelation of God as he has revealed himself historically. And there is this one woman who is concerned about her entire family, and she is assuming responsibility for their life, their physical welfare, and their spiritual welfare. She is um, a powerful woman that God has used greatly. You may be saying, well, what does that mean? What is your view of men and women? Is it hierarchical? Is it egalitarian? Is it complementarian? It's biblical. It's biblical. I, I'm not interested in any of those titles, quite frankly. I'm interested in what God has to say. And I'm interested in the fact that God has given us something in his word that we do not need to exalt or diminish based on some preconceived system that we put in authority over Scripture. This is exactly what's happening. It's a woman that God is using. Someone came to me after the service last Sunday, and they, they said, you know, I wondered what kind of message you could preach. Was it going to be some kind of watered-down, egalitarian message because you're put down without reservation to everything the Bible says in all of its clarity and historical accuracy, uh, and I would not compromise on that in any way, shape, or form. But that doesn't mean that we, we, we must interpret or look at what's going on with Rahab through some lens that limits what God would do through somebody who is committed to him. I'll say more about that later, uh, afternoon probably, at the rate that I'm going. <laughs> Rahab was concerned for her salvation, and Rahab was concerned for the salvation of her family. Rahab was concerned for her salvation, and Rahab was concerned for the salvation of her family. She was proactive. She was assuming responsibility for her family. Uh, parents, can I challenge you for a second? More than where your kids go to college and more than how much money they make when they get a job and more than their proficiency or, or their uh, great accomplishments in athletics, more than any of that, the most important thing that you better concern yourself with is their eternal soul. You better concern yourself with them hearing and understanding the gospel. You better concern yourself with your kids seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ manifested in your relationship with each other. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands. Alarms are going off now. I said the word submission. It's in the Bible, and I believe it. And that doesn't mean I'm opposed to women. That means that I believe what Scripture says, and God sets that up so that society can be ordered in a way that, that gives it the opportunity to continue, but so that society can be ordered in a way that kids can be raised up with an understanding of who he is. And so I would, I would challenge you this morning to be concerned for your families. Be concerned for your children. Have of utmost concern their soul. And that is going to dictate how you talk to one another, how you look at one another, the tone of your home, the objectives of your home. And so here is this woman. She's negotiating for the salvation of her family. She's willing to die for the salvation of her family. She's willing to turn her back on all of her history for the salvation of her family. So Rahab's concern. And then fourthly, we see Rahab's commitment, verses 14 to 22. And the men said to her, our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. 
And then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. This woman understood military strategy. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all of your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in your house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. The scarlet um, cord is uh, a cord that was the means of her salvation. Did the cord save her? No. But her being identified by the cord did save her. The cord is representative of the Passover. There was, there was blood on a doorpost. Did the, did the blood, the symbolic blood on the doorpost save Israel in Egypt, from, from death in Egypt in Exodus. No, it didn't. It was the death of the lamb that saved them. This cord, this scarlet cord that is hanging out the window is looking back to the Passover, this red representing the blood of one who has died, but it's looking forward to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we are identified with the Passover, when we are identified with the scarlet cord, when we are identified with and through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is one who has died for us and for our sin, and we can be saved. We can be passed over. We will not have to come under judgment if our identity is found in the scarlet cord. That's exactly what happened with Rahab. Drop this cord out the window. Rahab was saved because of her willingness to be identified with and by the sign of the scarlet cord. It was a means of her salvation. It was a means of her family's salvation. The cord looks back to the Passover, but it looks forward to the cross, and that's what the Passover points to this morning. Finally, if you go to, if you go to um, Joshua chapter 6, we see the end of the story. Israel moves in and marches around the city seven times. It says in verse 17, in the city and all that were Within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the strangers who were sent. They keep saying that over and over again. She cooperated with God. She was not competing with God. She cooperated with the plan of God, with the mission of God, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Verse 22, But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house. And bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron 
They put into the treasury of the house of the Lord, but Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy his commendation. We understand from other uh, places in Scripture that Rahab ended up, uh, Nashon was a prince of Israel, and Nashon had a son named Salmon, and Salmon and Rahab married, and Salmon and Rahab had a son named Boaz, who ended up marrying Ruth, and, uh, and Ruth and Boaz had a son named Obed, and Obed had a son named Jesse, and Jesse had a son named David. So we understand the significance of Rahab and Scripture pointing her out. She is an example of saving faith. Let me just offer you some thoughts as we close that I think are significant and pertinent to what we've just read and studied in the text this morning. Number one, the gospel is for those who are sinners. The gospel is for those who are sinners. The gospel is for those who know that they can't save themselves. And, and folks, I'm, I'm telling you, in much of our contemporary conversations today, even in the church, we are finding ourselves moving towards salvation by performance and self-righteousness. I won't go into details, but I want to tell you that, that we are sinners against the holy God, and because of our sin, we deserve death. And the only thing that satisfies a holy God on behalf of sin is death. There is none righteous, no, not one. Nobody is good. Nobody is good enough. All of our righteousness, Isaiah says, are as filthy rags. The best that you could do, the best that I could do, if I were as perfectly righteous as I could possibly be as a human being, would still be filthy rags compared to the holiness of God. Therefore, every human being that has ever been born, all seven billion of us stand before God condemned and death is required of us because of our sin. Self-righteousness will not save you or atone for any sin. None. But Christ came and he was perfectly righteous. Trust him. Christ came and he died for our death in our place for our sin. Trust him, not yourself. And Jesus Christ, because he was fully God and fully man, his death served as payment for all of humanity, but his resurrection proved that he was victorious over sin. And his victory is our victory if we trust him, if we identify with him. And so I would say to you this morning, the gospel is for those that are Sinners, He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He has delivered us from judgment. He is our substitute that died in our place. The gospel is for those who know that they are sinners. Are you clinging to idols? Are you enslaved to a pagan religious system? Are you thinking that you will hang on to your sin and take your chances with judgment? Are you self-righteous and the churches are full of self-righteous people today? Are you self-justifying or do you have a heart that is filled with humility this morning and you understand that you are a sinner? Because you know what? We want to sit in judgment of Rahab. Rahab the harlot. God used Rahab the harlot. There is none of us in this room that is any better than Rahab the harlot. And oh, what a sweet fellowship it is 
when we understand that we are sinful, broken, hopeless people under judgment. And we know that we have been redeemed by one who loves us so much, who invites us into his family, and who calls us his children. The gospel is for sinners. Secondly, to be redeemed is to be redefined. To be redeemed is to be redefined. God redeems people with a terrible past. God redeems us with erasing grace that obliterates sin and makes us into brand new people. When God redeems us, he gives us a new identity and looks at us 24-7 on the basis of our new identity that he has given us. Some of us are living in our old identity. Some of us are beaten down and depressed by our old identity. Some of us fear man because, quite frankly, people don't get the gospel. Even in church, we like to keep people's sin before them and deny them grace and freedom that is found in Christ alone. But we see from the text that to be redeemed is to be redefined. You say, well, why do they keep calling her Rahab the harlot? Everywhere in the New Testament, even after she's redeemed, even James and even the writer of Hebrews is calling her Rahab the harlot. Why are they doing that? I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bullhorn. It's, it's this horn that's blowing saying, look at God's grace. Look at his grace that saves the worst of sinners. The Bible does it through and through. Simon the leper, right? Blind Bartimaeus, everybody, even before their healing, are identified in Scripture by their malady that was their brokenness that they needed to be redeemed from. To be redeemed is to be redefined. And listen to me, don't wait for other people to recognize you as redefined. You need to identify yourself in your interior world as someone who has been made new. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. And the world is always going to try to use their self-righteousness. The church is always going to try to use its self-righteousness to try to keep you in the definition of your sin when Christ identifies us by his righteousness. I, I grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, I, was, I was voted in my senior class as the least likely to hang out with me because they thought I was just trouble. And I got saved when I was 16 years old, and God called me into the ministry when I was 19 years old, and I've been pastoring, involved in churches or in college ever since that time. Yet every time I go back home, people look at me and they'll say, You still preaching? I'm like, well, what do you think I'm doing, robbing banks? I mean, what, what, are you, what, are you, what kind of question is that? They just can't. I, I mean, I, I, I love going back home, and I hate going back home because the problem is this. People don't understand the redeeming power of God when he says, I want you. I'm going to take you. I'm going to make you mine. I'm going to use you for my glory. And, folks, I, I want to just beg and plead with you this morning. If you are in Christ, you have been Redefine, you're a new creature. You have a new life. You have a new energy. You have a new reason to live. You have a new hope. Be who Christ saved you to be. Thirdly, God is good even when the news is bad. God is good even when the news is bad. And I just want to beg you this morning to trust him. When you don't know what's going on, trust him. When there's a pandemic going on, trust him. Understand that God is enormous. Even if our nation is under judgment, even if bad things are happening in your life, even if there's sickness, even if there's poverty, even if you lose everything, 
Even if you're uprooted and moved to unfamiliar surroundings, God is good even when news is bad. God is good even when news is bad. And by the way, he's the only one you can turn to when news is bad. He's the only one that can make sense of it. Fourthly, you must have something worth dying for in order to have something worth living for. We are, we are obsessed with death in 2020. We are obsessed with death in 2020. And I've got news for you. Every one of us is going to die. Every one of us is going to die. And we're not going to choose when we die. We're not going to choose how we die right? We don't know. And I'm not trying to trivialize death, and I'm not, I'm not trying to trivialize threats. I would just say this. Everybody's worried about dying, but nobody's concerned about how to live until we do. And, and I want to I challenge you this morning to realize that we have something worth living for if we have been called by God to be his children, and to be in his family, and to be a part of his mission. And while there are these things that are going on down here that affect our life, and there are these things that are going on in Jericho that affect Rahab's life, there is something much bigger that is moving through that we need to see ourselves as a part of. And that thing that we need to see ourselves as a part of is something that we ought to be willing to give our lives to. I would beg you this morning to say, what am I doing with my life? I'm going to do something that's going to make some money. I'm going to do something that's going to make me popular. I'm going to do something that's going to make me famous. I'm going to do something that's going to make me powerful. I would say to you this morning as a believer that your first option, your best option, your only option is to give your life to the mission of God to say, how can God use me? Because that's worth living for. And by the way, that's worth dying for. If we die serving the mission of God, we have died a good death. We have died a good death. And so Rahab was willing to die. She didn't, she didn't know anything. She didn't have any YouTube videos to watch. 6,000 YouTube videos go up every hour. <laughs> She's not like, well, what are these Israelites like? What's it like when uh, the walls collapse? Can these people be trusted? Do we have any stories? Can I go to YouTube and find a story of somebody that they made a promise to and they kept the promise? She didn't know. She just knew that she had heard some things. The Spirit of God had worked in her heart. She confessed that these things were true, that this God was God, and she was going to trust him, and she didn't know what the outcome was going to be. She heard the walls crumbling down on all around her. She heard people screaming all around her. And yet she trusted this great and powerful God. She was willing to die for what she believed in we must have something worth dying for in order to have something worth living for. Then fifthly, we must care about those around us who are under judgment. Do you care about people that are under judgment? Do you care about people that have never believed the gospel? Rahab could have said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to get out of here. I'm sorry, family. I'm moving on. God's going to use me to bear children, to create a, a, a beautiful future, and the Messiah's going to come through me. His lineage is running through me, and so she could get, get all excited about that. But Rahab said, no, I'm concerned about my family. Folks, can I tell you something? We live in, in a, a city where people are running around with these jars of water that's essentially toilet water, and they're saying, this is fresh water, this is fresh water. People all around us are being told lies. People all around us are being led astray. People all around us are dying from spiritual toxicity. And God has said, South Point, I want you to be the source of fresh water in this community. 
Are you taking fresh water to those around you? We must be concerned for those around us. And then finally, before I close, ladies, I I would say this. Never underestimate the plans that God has for to use you for his kingdom and for his glory. Rahab is used as an illustration of faith throughout the Bible that should serve as a tremendous encouragement to men and to women. I would say that, first of all, big picture. Secondly, I would say never underestimate the value of family, ladies, and your role in it. Possess a deep desire to see those around you, and particularly your children, trust Christ for salvation. Thirdly, I would say never underestimate the value of parenting. It is apparent that family was of inestimable value to Rahab. What God took her from and what God made her into gave her a great value for family. And we see this um, amazing son, Boaz, who came from her and Salmon. I would also say, ladies, and and please, um, I won't ask you to forgive me. I affirm everything Scripture says, particularly in Ephesians 5, about husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church and wives submitting themselves unto their own husbands. If you'd like to have further conversation about that with me, I would love to talk with you about that because I don't believe that means full. But I believe for the sake of function, God has given us clear command in his Scripture as to how the family is to be ordered. But let me me just say this about, uh, about Rahab. Um, and about a Proverbs 31 woman. Submission does not mean passivity. Submission does not mean doormat. Submission does not mean that you're brainless. The word Rahab means insolence. It means fierceness. It means spacious. Rahab was a survivor. She was bold. She was a risk taker. She was proactive. She was powerful. She was not a passive woman. And I would say to you ladies in the church today, that the family of God needs strong, fierce, humble, compassionate women who love God, who have been transformed by the gospel, who are willing to risk their lives for the mission of God, and who are willing to commit themselves as men, although this text is addressing women, who are willing to commit themselves to the purpose of God according to his word. And so I would say that in hopes of exalting you this morning in a context where um, women are enticed by other things that don't ultimately fulfill them based on what Scripture says, but also are marginalized when they shouldn't be in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I would encourage you with those words this morning. I hope you take them as encouraging. As I close this morning, I would ask you, as we see this story of a great God coming through and wiping out a sinful people, raising up a woman to use her profoundly in bringing fresh water to you and I today by her being in the lineage of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you trusting Christ this morning? Are you trusting Christ this morning? Have you given your life to him and his mission? Are you living in your new identity in him? Are you aware of the people around you who need fresh water? Encountering God leads to repentance or rebellion. Repentance leads to unbelievable life. Repentance leads to celebration. There are those of you here and you've got sin and you're saying, I don't know if I can live without my sin. And I want to tell you, you have never lived until you repent of your sin. That's where life is found. Repentance leads to celebration. Repentance leads to unbelievable life. 
rebellion leads to unbearable death. Every week at South Point, we remember the Lord, and I'm going to step down here and see if I can find my communion cup. If you don't have uh, the little cup and the wafer, if you would, um, if somebody could make those available to you this morning, we would appreciate that. We talked about the Passover, and the Passover is where there was blood on the doorpost. That blood was symbolic of death. We talked about the scarlet cord. The scarlet cord was simply that. It was a piece of fabric that was red in color, the color of blood. And in the Passover, the children of Israel were identified with the blood on the doorpost. In the story of Rahab, she was identified with the scarlet cord. We are identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this juice, this red juice, represents the blood of Jesus. This wafer represents the body of Jesus. And when we partake of these elements, we are saying that our identity is in Jesus Christ. We are saying that we are trusting Him and not ourselves. We are saying that we are resting in His righteousness and not our self-righteousness. We are saying that, that we are accepting His payment for our sin and we're not trying to pay for it ourselves through penance or works. And we're saying that our hope, while this world is in a mess, is not in this world, but our hope is in His resurrection and our hope is in our resurrection and our hope is in drinking and eating this with Him at a great party, a grand party that's going to be in heaven when we go to be with Him. Is that who you are this morning? If that is who you are, then these things, just like blood on a doorpost and just like a cord hanging from a window, represent our commitment to and our identity and our faith in and our hope in Christ and Christ alone. So if you are resting in him this morning, Jesus said, take and eat. This is my body. And he said, drink ye all of it. Lord, in a, an age of plurality, in an age when there's so much information, in an age where there is no doubt, we hear the screams of a broken fallen world in this age convince us this morning that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved and I pray that we would trust you this morning I pray that if there's anyone in this room that's trusting themselves or their self-righteousness or even believes that they can't live without their sin I pray that they would repent this morning and I pray that they would experience new life. In Lord Jesus' name.